The biggest roadblock standing in the way of future growth right now for financial brands in the age of AI is not technology, even though 60 to 85% of all digital transformation initiatives have failed or failed to meet expectations. Nope, it's not technology. The biggest roadblock, it's people. It's people on your team who must deploy and utilize these new technologies in the age of AI. And perhaps, maybe, the biggest roadblock standing in your way right now might even just be you. But here is the good news. You can transform these human roadblocks into your greatest growth opportunities through a focus on human transformation that coincides with digital transformation. That's because, as the great Marcus Aurelius once wrote, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And the way to human transformation in the age of AI is on this episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Greetings and hello, I'm James Robert Lay, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, and I'm excited to welcome Pia Vindelbo to the show. Pia is the founder and CEO of Scandinavian Change Agents after spending over 15 years helping lead and guide change for the largest financial services group in the Nordic region and one of the biggest banks in Europe. And today, Pia and I are going to share how you can guide yourself, your team, and your organization through a period of exponential change and transformation as we journey further into the age of AI. Welcome to the show, Pia. It is good to share time with you today. Thanks, James Roberts. It's really nice to have the being on here. Absolutely. Before we get into talking about how to navigate the complexities of exponential change in this age of AI, particularly through the lens of financial services and how learning can, can facilitate some of that, building a culture of learning, building a culture of coaching centered around people. What is good in your world right now, personally, professionally, does your pick to get started on a positive note? <laughs> oh, there's lots of stuff that's uh, that's very good at the moment, I would say, uh, especially like the, the place I live at the moment. So I'm in Spain, so I can't complain about the weather, which uh, which I hear a lot from from my uh, sort of business associates in the Nordics. They are, they are starting to complain a bit. So so here it's nice and sunny still. So lots of positive energy from that part. Absolutely. Um, you know, here in the United States and more specifically in Houston, Texas, we finally have escaped the brutal heat of summer and are now getting into the a couple of weeks of fall cool temperatures. So we'll take that. And, and it's interesting you talk about the idea of, of energy, um, because when we think about change, we think a lot of times about particularly through the lens of financial services, digital transformation. It's been a big topic. Um, our research has found at a global level, 60 to 85% of all digital transformation projects, quote unquote, either fail or fail to meet expectations. But I, it's not because of technology. It's, it's because of the people that are having to deploy the tech. I, I want to start with this. Why must digital transformation also now include human transformation? I think it's it's the, the it's the core, as you just said. Um, it doesn't matter just to to implement uh, some new technology or some new system or platform. It's kind of the people who's behind it who has to operate, who who needs to take this in. So so not uh, or avoiding to talk about how people change around it, 
is, is a big mistake from my point of view. So, so I think it's the core of everything. If you want to have a successful digital transformation, you definitely need to, to look at the human side of it for sure. What is it though that at least up to this point within financial services, maybe there hasn't been a focus on human transformation yet, although I'm starting to see the narrative change, particularly through the COVID experience and, and beyond, but but why has it maybe been slow to think about human transformation in the context of digital transformation? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question, James Robert. I think, uh, I think part of it is that people actually do know that it takes time for people to, to, to sort of navigate around new stuff, but they don't really, they, they overestimate how quickly they think that people can take in new habits, new ways of working, new ways of looking at things. So they kind of tend to underestimate uh, that task, I would say. Uh, and another thing uh, related to that is that like as leaders, as business leaders, usually you're, you're quite over optimistic also of what your team can cope with. So what I usually talk a lot with people about is creating Slack. So one of the first things we look into is actually what can we take off the plate and not put more on to it? So, so that's at least uh, one interesting angle to this, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, one of the my favorite exercises to work with an organization through or a team through is to create a don't do list. Um, I think it's so easy to want to add more things to the list to do. But back to your point about Slack, if we don't, if we're already working at 80, 90, 95, 100% capacity, then it's very hard to create space and time to learn and to think and to review what we've done. This idea of thinking um, is something that I've been thinking a lot about if you will. Dan Sullivan, is he always says, we, we got to take time to think about our thinking. And I know holistic thinking um, can help financial brands really consider the human side of transformation. Um, and that's where things like behavioral design and, and, and neuroscience come into play. Let's unpack some of this for those who are watching or listening. What is holistic thinking and, and where's the opportunities here? Yeah, I would say to me at least, holistic thinking is is definitely about uh, going going in the helicopter, as the word also says. But for me, it's 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 a it's a variety of things that you need to go through. So it's so it's the the business strategy, it's the ecosystem, of course, you need to consider. Then it's the processes and the structures as well. I often see so that people are implementing new. A technology and then they are kind of lacking a bit to look at all the processes and structures that goes behind it they they are only focusing on the customer's side of it because uh, the customer centricity is is really popular right that that's usually where companies nowadays start because they really want to create good customer journeys and of course that's really really important but then what i often see is that they are then lacking the behind the scenes stuff and really looking into what kind of impact will this have on our structures on our processes and then Definitely the people part, as we were just discussing, uh, the new ways of working, the way that we are treating um, the customer in, in different parts of the organization. So the whole value chain, basically, also. And then the culture and the staff engagement is, is really important to also create this, this uh, optimal customer experience. So I would say you have to go around the full wheel here. Yes. And, and to your point, the idea of CX or customer experience it was, I would say, the hot topic from 2010 to 2020. 
Um, Even whenever I wrote banking on digital growth, I wrote it through a lens of what I call DX plus HX equals growth, meaning a positive digital experience combined with a positive human experience is the path towards growth. Very quickly though, however, through the COVID experience, I realized that I missed a key element in growth in transformation, which is the EX, the employee experience, because a, a brand's customer experience, a brand's digital experience, a brand's human experience is only going to be as positive as the employee experience internally. What are you seeing on that front right now through the work you're doing around employee experience? How how are internal teams feeling at the present moment when it comes to change and transformation? I think we have a good uh, long way to go there still. So, so I fully echo you on this one. I see exactly the same that the whole employee part has been been really lacking. The understanding of how the, these connects and intercollate uh, has has been missed uh, in a lot of this, and it's back to the understanding of how we as humans actually take on change. So. Uh, it's really also a lot about how managers actually uh, learn how to, to to cope around these changes. So they don't understand that maybe they've been sitting in their um, sort of a business um, team for half a year or maybe some team, sometimes even longer to create a new strategy or like product or something like that, a new vision. Uh, and then they expect everybody to take this in quite quickly. So, so they are overestimating again how quickly their organization is going to adapt to this. And it might even be so that they don't even understand what they are talking about. So, so we as humans also have very different perspectives on, you know, understanding what what comes uh, to us because of our different lenses, right? So, so I think that it would be really valuable if if um, C level managers and business managers in general were more interested in the whole neuroscience and the behavioral design perspectives of how people actually take on change. Let's talk about that because when you think about digital transformation and human transformation, digital transformation, it's ones and zeros. And I know there's a lot of discussion around data right now, Um, but I am making an argument. No, that's great. But behind every data point is DNA. Um, it's, It's the human experience, if you will. Where where does the practice or the science of neuroscience behavior modification how does that fit into the to the context of this type of thinking and maybe maybe also why is there a gap today within that realm that could be a the lack of knowledge is an impediment to future growth from an employee experience standpoint? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think one, one thing at least to, to uh, dig into, which I think is quite interesting and very basic when it comes to, to the neuroscience, uh, is the dual process theory. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's the system two, one and two, the way that we actually um, take decisions as humans. Yep. And for me, this is quite centered around also when we are doing these uh, transformations. Uh, so basically, what system one is all about is the, the fact, intuitive, unconscious uh, stuff that we do. So it's where it's it's that system we use when we are basically brushing our teeth, running a bike or something like that. So, so that's everything that is system one. 
And then we have a system two as well, which is slow, reflecting, it's controlled, uh, and it's more thinking about the future, it's rational. Um, and as you can probably already hear from, from what I'm saying here, um, system two is a bit slower as well. Uh, and, and this is where we really use a lot of energy when we're using that system. So generally we are, as humans, we are quite lazy, right? Yes. We don't want to use more energy than uh, we have to. Um, so that means that for everybody, we are trying to use as much of our energy on system one, you know, that's the easy part. So when we have to do things differently, for instance, in a digital transformation, where we are now implementing a new solution uh, that demands people maybe to work differently or think differently or, or react differently towards a customer, then we are actually putting system two into work here. And what managers often don't realize is that this is going on. So they expect people just to take this in and just go on uh, as this is just easy peasy things, but it's, it's actually really not. Uh, so understanding how we as humans actually take decisions and how we actually cope with things like this is a very valuable, I would say, first step stone in, in trying to change the way that we actually implement digital transformations. Absolutely. And the idea of system one, system two thinking, the book Thinking Fast and Slow expands yeah. upon some of this perspective here. I, I'm glad you touched on the idea too of the the amount of energy that is required with these different types of system one and system two thinking. That's one of the reasons I think anytime you undergo any type of change, whether that be digital transformation, whether that be uh, you want to get healthier, you want to start a new routine, there's going to be some type of energy that is required and why it can feel tired, um, tiring. Dr. Benjamin Hardy wrote a great book uh, called Willpower Doesn't Work. Um, and it's the idea that when we try something new, we can have the amazing amount of willpower, but it's like a muscle. It's going to eventually tire and fatigue. And that's why setting up an environment for change or transformation is so critical because the environment plays such a key role in that. Um, let's, let's stay on this subject here a little bit further. What are the opportunities to help an individual or help a team, help an organization navigate this system one, system two energetic perspective around change. Simply we're creating some awareness here. People might not even be thinking about that, but where are the opportunities? I see a lot of uh, different opportunities um, in this because I think that if we really start working with with the transformation differently, we will actually create capacity to 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 take them in, and then you'll see longer terms um, uh, sort of uh, transformations that will actually hold. Because just as you were explaining, you see a lot of peaks. Like people are very excited first hand on, on something, and then you maybe create an MVP or it goes very well the first months uh, of this, and then it goes down again, and then you're back to, to, to square one. So yep. I think if you're starting to understand how people react around this one, you will actually create much more successful transformation. And I think also opportunities in this, in, in, in understanding that you should chunk them up. So, so usually what I see as well is that you take way too big trunks too, too fast, you know, better take small steps all the time instead of taking huge trunks uh, in at once. So, so 
I think that there's, if you work with this correctly, then you can change the statistics that we were just talking about earlier, uh, going from these uh, 80, 90% uh, of failure to, to success instead. So, so that's the, the big opportunity I see uh, for the future if people start really working with this differently. It's a great point around the smaller chunking things out into smaller bite size pieces. There's a Shel Silverstein poem uh, that I used to read my kids and I, it went something like this. Uh, there was a girl, her name was Melinda May. She thought she could, she, she wanted to eat this monstrous well. She thought she could, she said she would. So she started right at the tell and everyone said, Melinda, you're much too small, but that didn't bother Melinda at all. She took little bites and chewed very slow just like a good girl should. So basically she ate this well, but she ate it how? Bite by bite by bite, chunk by chunk. And what happens when you take the smaller bite, those begin to stack up over time. James Clear writes about this in Atomic Habits, the idea of 1%. The 1% is exponential. And now we measure progress by where we've come from, and that creates additional momentum to continue forward because it raises the energy once again. It's like, man, we're, look at us. We're succeeding. We're making progress. We've, we've come a long way. Exactly. When, when you think about the idea of progress in regards to human transformation, I've actually looked at this through a couple of different lenses. And you'd mentioned lenses before, perspective. Um, perspective is what I call the sum of context and framing. And really, when you're working within a team, you're working within an organization, you've got a lot of different perspectives. Um, how have you personally navigated the complexities of change because you have had a very interesting journey and very similar to mine, which is just unique, that our different experiences are somewhat shared parallels and I'm curious is like how that plays in just our own perspectives but how have you transformed yourself over the last three decades or so four decades for that matter yeah I was saying one of the things that I usually say is my my most important tool is being curious so I try all the time to meet very openly. So I don't, I try really hard not to, because I know our brains are so fast and putting people into boxes, right? Or things into boxes. Yeah. So I'm trying to unlearn that and just, you know, keep a clear, really open mind to right. whatever meets me and being very curious. So I think curiosity is actually one of my greatest tools. Uh, and then knowing from that, that I, there's always stuff that I can learn, like really telling myself that no matter where I'm aware of or which level I'm at, there's always new stuff that I can learn. So I really try to meet people openly. And that means also that even though some people maybe give you critique or you, you get like a, a slap in your face of something, I always try to remember that it's their perspective. And even though I might not fully agree, I can't change that this is actually how they perceive me. So I have to figure out whether I want them to perceive me like that or not, or I should change around it. So, so I think that that is one of the most important tools uh, that I've used uh, throughout my, my career. I appreciate that being a curious kindergartner. Um, I think we kind of outgrow some of that uh, along our journeys, but if we can come back to that curious mind of a five, six, seven, eight year old and look at the, 
the the world through that lens of hmm what can i learn from this experience or what can i learn from this person having coming into a relationship coming into a conversation even in like all the conversations of the podcast i come in with an open mind looking to learn from and maybe change my challenge my own cognitive bias like uh, it's the ancient greek perspective from socrates what he defines as knowledge and wisdom was i know i know nothing um and the idea of learning though is a challenge and i think about some of the work that we've done um it's been very challenging working within financial services of encouraging that curiosity encouraging the ongoing learning. Why is that? Because you've spent time in financial services as well. And I think if I go back, you know, you, you were building websites in the late nineties, early two thousands, just like I was CMS, uh, content management systems. And, and then you got into, uh, financial services over that time period. And then now you're back doing entrepreneurial work. But why the, why the struggle, why the challenge to create space and time to continuously learn? We've done research on this and we've actually found here in the US, the financial leader invest an hour to two or less, and that's about 79% into ongoing learning and development. I just see that so dangerous in the world that we're living in right now. It's almost like if you think about financial services, it's all about managing risk. That's a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Why is this? I agree. I think it's because it's a world of Excel. <laughs> to make it really short, but I think I, I think it comes back to to not having the right framework. So that was mm. some of the stuff that I really experimented a lot with when driving these uh, innovation hubs. So I was lucky enough to sort of go into the financial industry and trying to 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 really um, level out and try out different stuff. So I was a crazy person coming in and, and trying to turn things uh, around. So so building up these innova- uh, innovation hubs, for instance, we, we tried to create a framework where it was okay to experiment, to play, to do the things differently. Um, and that's what's needed. It's needed that the, the space, as we were talking about before, I really, really think it's, it's very simple, but the, the slack needs to be there. There needs to be a framework and a system that kind of holds you to, to actually doing this, because otherwise you'll just be, uh, you know, caught up in, in the, your daily tasks. So I usually say that, that the short term perspective usually are uh, eating the long term perspectives for breakfast, right? Mm. In, in, in these uh, sort of um, corporate uh, frameworks often uh, it's so short term so yeah. so it's really hard to create that long-term perspectives on things so so you kind of really need to fight for creating the space for it but if you succeed in doing so uh, I think um, it's very interesting what you can do as a team actually if you start working together on on, on um, being much more long-sided being much more uh, into the experimental uh, work and, and spending some time we, on weekly basis on just studying or learning stuff uh, from the ground. That's a great point. The idea of a lack of frameworks or systems is the impediment to action here. That actually echoes some of the work that we've done utilizing the Colby methodology. Are you familiar with Kathy Colby and her work over there by any chance? Uh, no, 
actually I haven't heard about that. So that's interesting. So now my now my curious is yeah now, yeah yeah. So so this is this is going to be interesting because Kathy yeah. Colby um, uses what's called the Colby A index, and that looks at how a person naturally takes action or solves a problem. And there are four different areas within this framework. You've got what is called fact finding. So how much information do I need? And it's and it's all energy based. Um, how much uh, one is it called follow through, which is about systems and frameworks. One is called quick start. Um, and then one is called implementers. Like how do you deal with a tangible world? So for example, I'm a three fact finder. So I resist a lot of information. I'm a two follow through, meaning I, I'm going to probably go in and look for ways to like shortcut things just naturally. I'm a nine quick start. So I initiate action or solve problems by just jumping in and like, let's figure this out, pilot things. And, and really it's trial by error. Um, and if it doesn't work, we don't do that again. If it works, okay, let's work it, work this out again. In financial services, though, through the Colby profiles that we have done, and the, we've done hundreds of them at this point, the traditional financial brand leader or manager will initiate action or solve problems either by fact-finding or by following through. That's their initiating action. So without a framework, it makes perfect sense as to why what comes naturally to an entrepreneurial perspective, which tends to initiate action by quick starting, why the framework actually makes them feel better moving forward. I, I want exactly. to pause. It gives them a bit of control feeling, at least because that's that's a big part of what you're saying there as well, that they shouldn't feel too uncomfortable. So, so it's, it's a, it's a way of keeping them still in the comfort zone, yeah. uh, but still moving forward. Yes. And, and, and that idea of, of comfort, like I'm completely comfortable being uncomfortable to the point to where I take ice baths to build that type of resiliency for myself. Now, not everyone is like me. I understand that. Um, but I've made recommendations if you want to build that, like that AQ, that adaptability quotient, go take ice baths. Go put yourself in uncomfortable situations and just learn through the experience. But I understand that everyone's not like that. And I think it the turns way out that we have more and more in common because I, I do the same. Yes. <laughs> I, yes, I like these winter baiting. That's the, the biggest problem actually being now here in Spain, that it, it's a bit more difficult to take those really cold uh, ocean jumps uh, at wintertime. So in, in Houston, Texas, I mean, it is hot, hot during the summer, but I figured out how to do it. You just have to fill the bathtub up at night. And then from there, you have these big water bottles that you put in the freezer and you let those, and you can get the water down to about 50, 50 degrees and it's beautiful. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole other side for those, for those who are yeah. listening or watching, if you want to take ice baths, maybe we need to do a whole podcast about that because it is about building, <laughs> it's about building your AQ. But the other thing that I've been thinking about too, from a mental model uh, and a framework, uh, because that's how my mind thinks is EQ plus AQ is greater than IQ, meaning the emotional emotional intelligence, EQ, and adaptability quotient is greater than IQ, just intelligence alone. And I think that's even more true now as we're entering into this age of AI. I, I think how old you were 
And I've been asking a lot of leaders this question, and it's a very rude question. But I, I'm like, you know what? We're going to get over it really fast. And when we do it as a group, we do it as a team, they, they all laugh. But I have everyone go around the room and write down on a piece of paper how old they were in 1994, and then they hold that up. And sometimes you know, you'll have people in 1994 who were – 30, 35, some people who were in their early 20s, some who were in their teens. In 94, I was 13 years old myself. Some people who were you know, five years old, some people who weren't even born yet in, in, in these leadership teams. And I said, this is important because in 1994, that was the year that the internet came out. That was the year that it, it was around before, but it reached the mass consciousness of humanity in 94. And now here we are 30 years later, essentially, and we're entering this whole new period with AI. And there's the collaboration opportunities that come with that. But if we don't have the contextual frameworks, particularly through financial services, I think it's going to be very challenging. Where does, coming back to the framework of EQ plus AQ is greater than IQ, where does EQ, where does emotional intelligence fall in this for you with people? I think it's uh, I think it's important uh, definitely to 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 take that part in, and you are fully right. It's, it was so funny to to listen to how you describe those those personalities uh, because it, you are right. Uh, certain personalities are probably also attracted to certain industries and jobs in in general. Uh, so so actually taking that into account as well uh, is is quite important. I think as a as a business leader that you kind of uh, look at your team and then try to ensure that you have a diverse a set of people who have different mindsets mm. um, when when you want to do this uh, in a certain way. So so definitely also something to to consider. Well, what's happened though is two things. One, when 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 we look at Colby, it actually is, it's that personality. It's it's a person's mo, their modus operandi. It's how they naturally take action or solve problems. So it's it's that personality driven like a disc or Myers Briggs, which I think makes it very very unique. The other thing, though, that we find is what's called conative cloning, meaning that the someone hires someone that is operates naturally like they do. And so you don't have the diversity of maybe not thought. Thought is one piece of it, but the diversity of how we solve problems or how we take action. And so we all end up doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. When it comes to some yeah, of the, exactly. when it comes to some of the models and frameworks that you've worked with organizations and teams through, what what have you found that has helped people maybe see things from a different perspective? And when they see different, they begin to think different. Yeah, we we actually, I would say that I try to go quite operational uh, around some of these things. So so I actually investigate this. Uh, I use different models than what we were just saying, but that doesn't really matter. It's the same thing. But, but you also go in uh, and then you see, okay, how does this team actually map, map out? How do we as people actually um, look at different problems or situations and, and what are our filters and all of that? So we kind of from the beginning off uh, knows exactly, uh, is there some parts of this that we are lacking in the team? Are we quite familiar? Like, are we in the same place? Are we very scattered? Uh, so we kind of know which bias we are working with uh, when we are taking decisions or when we are working on on a, on a project together. So I would say that I would I would do these point of departures with teams uh, where we go into these discussions, 
we also uh, work on on you know how would we um, how would it look like if we succeed how would it look like if we fail because those kinds of uh, questions that are quite interesting also to ask a, a diverse team because you get very different perspectives on these kinds of questions so so actually trying in the beginning of uh, something when you want to cooperate um to mitigate for these bias that might be in the team um uh, kind of put them on the table so everybody can see it and you can talk openly about it is is quite valuable. Um, I would say also questions like, how, how do you actually prefer to be communicated with? How do you solve issues? Uh, if you're push, uh, pushed, how do you then generally react? Those kinds of questions uh, are quite interesting to, to actually put on the table, I would say. Oh, that's a, that's a great point because you're, you're learning more about the human experience and then as a result, you can increase your adaptability to the people that you're collaborating with. You mentioned something exactly. on the point of failure. Um, yeah. What's your take on failure as part of this transformational journey? Because in banking on digital growth, I wrote about the four fears uh, that hold individuals, teams, and organizations back. You have the fear of the unknown, you have the fear of change, you have the fear of failure, which a lot of times the fear of failure is very closely related to the fear of rejection. How how do you recommend a leader deal with that? Because I think it, we all we all deal with the, these fears, but it's either a how we react to them or b hopefully how we respond. Because when we're responding, we're more in control of the situation. What's your take? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I would say that again, I would I would speak very openly about it. So usually I do some very practical uh, sessions around it. Uh, when you are kicking off with a new team, for instance, I would do a, a round of no hats, uh, like, you know, what is your perspective on this and that? So, so you kind of get all the negative things uh, out in the room as well. So you mm. actually look at everybody's fears. So people actually start telling you about what they're actually fearing. Of course, this demands that you first have like kind of a build a psychological trust in the team, yeah. uh, but you can also like build on that and build on that and build on that and build on that. Uh, but, but starting to openly really discuss it is, is at least I think a very important first step. And then another thing that is really, really important is that how you as a manager then takes this on. So if people then start coming to you and telling you something uh, that is really like bothering them or worrying them, you should take it really carefully uh, how, how they actually uh, come to you. You should treat it uh, like with empathy because if you do so, then people learn, okay, it's actually okay to come and say that I don't necessarily know exactly how to do this. I need help with this. Uh, or is there anybody in the team who might have a good suggestion on how we can solve this particular thing? Uh, so, so at least from my my perspective, I think that building that kind of trust in the team is 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 crucial because you will also mitigate for a lot of failures that doesn't happen because you actually talk about them before they come big elephants uh, in the room and you can also mitigate for things that might come in the future that you can see already now maybe these stakeholders need to be the more massaging. Uh, or maybe this thing might not work. We, we need more time on this particular thing here that we are trying to build doesn't really fit into the system or whatever it is. If people really dare to say out loud when they see something that this doesn't really work, or I think as a specialist that it would be better to do that than that, that, 
then you create an, an environment where it's okay to, to learn and adapt and say that I might also have done a, a, a failure here. Uh, you know, I thought we were supposed to go in this direction, but maybe it's better to go here with what you guys are saying or what I just experienced. Yes. You know, my, my take on failure is, and, I, and I'm working with my kids on this right now, that because they're in this age, they're 13, 11, 9, and 7, and so they're starting to experience failure. And I'm like, listen, in, in, in the lay household, we either have winners or we have learners. We don't have failures in this household. We have winners or we have learners. Because I think if you can take any failure, you transform the sting of that failure, the pain of that failure into a learning opportunity. Well, that's something that we can apply then to the next iteration for whatever that might be in our lives. And as we start to wrap it's up. It's the fastest way to learn that's to fail, right? It, I would say. It, no, it, it absolutely <laughs> is. And I, I think if we can, back to perspective, if we can just reframe the perspective of failure through our own lens into a learning opportunity, it actually can somewhat become fun because then it's like, wow, now I know what I can take going forward to make the future even that much bigger, better, brighter. And, and I think you, you mentioned something earlier as well. I wanted to loop back around on, uh, we're so busy for the short-term wins. We're not focused on the long-term gains. That's like any type of transformation, whether that be health and wellness. So, you know, I need to, you know, run three, five miles. I need to lift weights if I'm, you know, cause in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm going to live to be 158. Okay. So I, I, there's a lot of things that I have to do now to make that long-term goal, but it's about habit stacking. Um, finances, you know, are the same exact way. We, we tend to uh, forget the long term to get the short term dopamine hit. But this is also true within our organization. So I think there's a deeper and I need to give this some more critical thinking. But the the idea of the future self, um, we, we, there's some new research coming out around this. It's a relatively newer perspective within psychology of the future self and how the future self influences or can positively influence the decisions that we're having here today. Well, that works great at an individual level, but, but where are the opportunities to have the future self of the team or the future self of the organization? And what are we willing to give up in the present moment to then realize the future self that we're working towards as a team or as an organization? I'm going to give that some more thinking, but I want to wrap up on this because this entire conversation is around human transformation in the context of digital transformation. What are the characteristics of successful change managers within an organization today? What does it take? Ooh, that's a really, that's, that's a good one uh, to, to end with. I would say that going back to what I actually um, talked about when you asked me uh, what was important, I think the curiosity is, is, is a really important uh, thing. So, so definitely you need to be visionary, uh, strong. You also need to have good communication skills. And then from, from my perspective, the empathy and the emotional intelligence, as we have also spent quite much talking uh, about today, I think is, is, is really crucial. And that's where I'm then, you know, anchoring it back to meeting others with a curious, curious open mind. Um, and then, of course, the resilience and the adaptability. I think that if you want to, to, to be part of this, you need to experience it on your own. You need to be willing to experience it uh, on your own body and not just pushing it uh, down, but actually being part of it, taking part of it, uh, taking the wall, you know, walking the talk. Uh, yeah. 
And then of course the whole stakeholder engagement, I think, I think that is really important because that's about creating the space as we were also talking about today. I think you as a, as a, as a change agent or leader, uh, definitely need to create some space for your team to work around these things. Um, so, so that is at least some of the stuff, uh, if I should so, sort of summarize, that's that a, I think is important. That's a great, great summary right there. I always like to send everyone who is watching or listening off with one thing that they can do to practically apply what we've been discussing here because it really is in line with what we've been discussing. All change that leads to future growth starts with a very small, simple commitment today, right now in the present moment that we can continuously repeat going forward to the future. What would be the one small recommendation that that you would make for someone who is watching or listening to begin to navigate or to continue to navigate the complexities of change? Yeah, I think it's... Um... It would be to go back to their organization and maybe their own life and see how they can work out some more slack to actually start uh, making space for, for changing. Mm. What are you going to give up? What are you going to say no to? What, exactly. What do you got to let go of to continue yeah. to grow? Pia, this has been exactly. such a fantastic, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining. What's the best way for someone to continue the conversation that we've started here today? Yeah, they can either reach me on LinkedIn. So it's Pia Vendelbo. They can find me on LinkedIn or they can go to ScandinavianChangeAgents.com, my website. ScandinavianChangeAgents.com. Connect with Pia, learn with Pia, connect with her on LinkedIn, grow with her. Pia, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. This has been a lot of fun today. Definitely. It was such, such a pleasure talking to you. As always, and until next time, be well. Do good and be the light.